Good morning, Highland. It's good to be with you today, at least in the way that we can be with one another. The last time I had the pleasure of accepting your hospitality was February 2nd of this year, which is officially in the before. All things being equal, I really am grateful for the technology that allows us to gather in these ways, even when we can't gather in the ways that we prefer. And over the last four, five, now nearly six months that we've been doing this, that we've been experiencing together the conditions of the pandemic, I've been thinking again and appreciating anew the way that changes in the world around us or changes in our own lives cause different things to rise to the surface of our Bible reading. And I've been thinking about that a lot this week because the passage we'll be looking at today, the story of Rhoda in Acts chapter 12, takes place in a home where a group of Christians are fearfully sequestered from a real outside threat, and they're praying for some kind of unexpected deliverance. And so my prayer for us this morning is that God might give us a word that is both liberating and challenging as we consider together the story of our sister Rhoda. I'm going to be reading in Acts chapter 12 this morning, and if you have a Bible available to you, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and get that out and turn to this passage with me. I'm going to read the full story, but as I do, I'll invite you to pay particular attention to the appearance of Rhoda in the story. Read with me, please, Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. And after he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now this was during the festival of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. The very night that Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up, quickly and the chains fell off of his wrists. The angel said to him, fasten your belt, put on your sandals, and he did. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him, and he did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought at first he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane when suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. When he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. 
They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she insisted that it was so. They said, it is his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. He motioned to them with his hand to be silent and described for them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he added, tell this to James and the other believers. And then he left and went to another place. When morning came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You're halfway through this series now, focusing on specific characters in the biblical narrative that help illuminate for us those relationships in the church that are so fundamental to us being effective and faithful disciples of Jesus. Rhoda is the next character in the series, and I think we have to confess that compared to some of the biblical giants we've seen so far, people like Jonathan or Nathan the prophet, people like Peter and Paul, Rhoda seems a little bit out of place. In lists of famous women in the Bible, Rhoda very rarely makes the cut. There's very little in the way of good Bible art for Rhoda. Come to think of it, there's very little in the way of bad Bible art for Rhoda. Her role in the story is short, just a couple of verses. She's a slave girl, possibly a young one, a person of very little significance in her society and the kind of person that people might be accustomed to simply not noticing. Her time on the New Testament stage is short, and even in her own chapter, she's overshadowed by other characters. Her role in the events is limited and maybe even a little comical. Rhoda, on the whole, is really easy to discount. But I want to invite us this morning not to make the same mistake that the members of the church in the story make, and that's of discounting her story too quickly or dismissing her too easily. When Luke begins chapter 12, he's cut back to Jerusalem from his account of the growth of the church in Antioch under the leadership of Saul and Barnabas. He frames this story by telling us what time it is. It's Passover, the festival of the unleavened bread. And it's important because the last time Luke made a point to tell us that it's Passover, Jesus was saying, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. He puts us in a time in which we know that the situation is fraught. It's full of both meaning and tension for Christians. Because not that long ago, Jesus was crucified and resurrected at precisely this time. There's a different Herod on the throne now, although it's difficult to tell, because this Herod too is more interested to playing to the baser instincts of his constituency than he is to governing justly. Herod had James killed, and upon seeing the popularity that that accorded, has Peter put in prison through the end of Pentecost. Herod makes his appearance at the end of the scene, as if to underscore the general threat that the Christians are living under at this time. It's Passover in Jerusalem, and Peter is now in prison. Now, if you know a little bit about the story of Acts, you'll recognize that a scene like this is actually pretty familiar. It's not even the first time that Peter has been in prison. Peter is unjustly imprisoned here, 
like he was in Acts chapter 3 with John, and like he and the other 11 apostles were in Acts chapter 4. Saul and uh, Paul and Silas are going to be unjustly imprisoned in Acts chapter 16. In this story, Peter is released from prison miraculously by divine power, just as he was in chapter 4, and just again as Paul and Silas will be in chapter 16. Here we have the pairing of prayer and imprisonment, but that's about where the similarities between this story and the other imprisonment stories begin and end. And instead, our attention is drawn to the features of this story that are particular and, I think, important. We note that Peter is in a maximum security situation here because Luke really labors over the details. There are four squads of soldiers. He's bound by the wrist with two chains, sleeping between two soldiers guarded by not one, but two further sets of guards behind not just gates, but iron gates. The details of his imprisonment serve to heighten the drama when the angel appears in the middle of the night and comes to release a sleepy and stunned Peter, who apparently mutely follows the angel's very basic step-by-step instructions. Wake up, put on your shoes, get your cloak. Peter doesn't even realize that he's really being released from prison until all the doors and gates have sprung open before him just as the chains fell on his wrist, and he's standing a free man in a lane somewhere in Jerusalem. Only then, when the angel has left him, does Peter realize, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and all that the people were expecting. So what's a recently escaped Christian convict to do? Peter knows that a place he can reliably head is evidently the home of a woman named Mary, the mother of John Mark. And indeed, it is at her house that Christians have gathered to pray precisely for Peter's release. When he arrives at the house, he discovers for the first time the only door in the story that's remained closed. Enter Rhoda. We know very little about her, save her name. Your translation might call her a maid, like mine did, perhaps a servant girl. In truth, she's a slave girl, possibly a young one, who serves in the home of Mary. She's the one who comes to the outer door in the middle of the night to figure out who's knocking. This might be the door to the house's outer courtyard. She immediately recognizes Peter's voice, whether she's a full-fledged member of the community or just familiar enough with the Christians to know, that much is unclear. But she knows Peter by sound and not just by sight. And in that moment, she's so overjoyed that Peter is there and not in prison like they thought that she runs inside to tell the others and leaves Peter standing outside, still knocking. This turn of events is almost comical, isn't it? I think we're wondered if we aren't meant to chuckle a little bit. It's not unlike the story of Eutychus, where he falls asleep while Paul drones on and on into the middle of the night. Is there something here that's meant to be a little bit comedic? Are we allowed to laugh? After all, Rhoda seems a bit flighty here, or at least a little prone to be overexcited. She leaves Peter, who has recently escaped from jail and is very soon to be wanted, standing in the street. Silly Rhoda, we say. We pat her on the head. She's easy to make the butt of the joke here. 
the object of our lighthearted amusement, and a story that in the end is all's well that ends well for the Christians. But before we reach any hasty conclusions, let's continue reading. Rhoda runs into the gathering of the church, all of whom are fervently praying for Peter's release, and she announces the arrival of precisely what they have been praying for, a freed Peter. But when she does, they reply to her, you're out of your mind. Now, if that sounds derogatory, it's because it is. The word, when it's used in other writings, has the sense of being raving, like you're not entirely in touch with reality. When Luke uses it elsewhere, it has the sense of being irrational. Every woman listening who's ever been told she's being hysterical may have just felt her blood pressure rise a little bit. Rhoda is summarily dismissed by the Christians who were gathered there, but she persists in telling them, in insisting that Peter is outside. The church goes on to reach the seemingly more unlikely conclusion that it's not Peter, but it's his angel or his messenger, although what precisely that means isn't exactly clear either. Evidently, eventually Rhoda's persistence pays off because someone eventually goes to the door and discovers Peter standing there in the flesh and on the other side of the only door in the story that has remained closed to him. It's all too easy to read the story and think that Rhoda is the silly one. But if we're meant to laugh at all at the ironies in this story, I'm fairly certain we're more meant to laugh at the church those gathered disciples who dismiss her word of precisely what they've been praying for. They don't hear her. They don't take her seriously. So much that they come up with what seems like an even less realistic possibility for what they think she thinks she heard. The very thing they've been praying for. And it's here, church, that I think the story begins to ask us some far more pointed questions, at least if we'll let it. Is it possible that we could be so sure we know what to expect from God that we miss hearing the arrival of good news we didn't see coming? Does our sense, some internal sense of who usually gets to be a bearer of the good news, prevent us from hearing the right word from what doesn't um, automatically seem to us to be the right person? Are we capable of ignoring the voices in our own midst who might be inviting us to throw open our doors to an unexpected and more comprehensive and more joyful understanding of what God is doing? The answer to all of these questions is, I think, of course. Of course that's possible. We'd like to deny, vehemently deny, that there are voices among us that we don't really listen to that there are people that we tend to overlook or to undervalue. But a moment's honest self-evaluation, I think, makes that denial pretty difficult because I think we'll be more likely to lead to confess that we are more likely to hear and to heed those voices that sound like us, those people that remind us of us or at least who we hope to be. I think we're more likely so often to hear and to heed people who are successful or charismatic, people who are important or have a few initials after their name. I think we'd like to think that we're above such paltry and superficial calculations, but I don't know that our practice always bears out our ideal. 
I'm not suggesting, of course, that we don't listen to people who are important or successful, people who are well-credentialed. Those things are gifts, especially when they're used in service of the church to help us grow more into the people God is calling us to be. But at the same time, I think the story warns us to be careful about the people that we might not be hearing, to pay attention to the voices that we might be too quick to discount, to make sure we're open to hearing a word we're not expecting. Because the truth is that if we aren't very careful and if we aren't very intentional, our perception of the gospel what we see and hear in the gospel, who we think the gospel includes and what we think the gospel entails and how big and comprehensive we think the gospel is, our perception of the gospel in this way is so easily limited and clouded. We are, every one of us, prone to a kind of spiritual astigmatism that distorts what the gospel looks like, especially when we only ever look at it through our own lens or through a lens that's much like ours. We are, all of us, inclined to a selective kind of hearing in which we hear what we expect to hear from the people we expect to hear it from. Like this church in Jerusalem so earnestly gathered to pray for Peter's release, I fear that we too easily find our capacity to receive the good news compromised if we can't take a voice like Rhoda's seriously. And it's a serious thing to have our vision of the good news compromised or limited, especially now in the face of a pandemic that is so comprehensively bad news. There is not a feature of our society or of our personal lives that is unaffected by what's going on around us. It threatens our health and our livelihood, our friendships and our loved ones, our progress toward our goals, our sense of satisfaction and accomplishment, our sense of well-being and safety. A circumstance this comprehensive strips away the pretense that we're somehow in control of our own destinies, that we can reduce or eliminate the things that threaten us or make us vulnerable. We're weary and frightened, and many of us overwhelmed with impossible-seeming decisions and risk management calculations we're now doing on a daily basis. For those of us who are accustomed to going, who have found and continue to find a sense of comfort in activity and accomplishment, in productivity, for those of us who have to confess that we find real consolation in a sense of control, even when, if pressed, we'll admit we know it's an illusion. For all of us, the pandemic is very bad news indeed. And yet I wonder if in the midst of it, if we don't have the capacity and the opportunity to hear a word of good news in a way we haven't heard it before. In this season in which we're all feeling our mortality a little more keenly than usual, I wonder if we might hear the Rhodas among us calling us more fully into the good news by calling us to pay attention to those among us whose health is most vulnerable. And by calling us not just to recognize, but to live in light of our need to love our neighbors by caring for them well and protecting them in the ways that we can. There has been, since the pandemic started, troubling rhetoric that says it's not so serious because it only affects those who are already vulnerable. How tragic. But what an opportunity for the church to bear witness to the gospel 
and to Jesus' own concern for those who are already the most vulnerable. Maybe there is an opportunity here to be called in our attention to the margins, to those who might be missed or not heard, and to place our attention there as Jesus did. In a season in which our country continues to grapple publicly and privately with the persistent and deadly realities of racism and white supremacy, Rhoda might be compelling us to listen to the voices around us, too often ignored or dismissed, who are telling us about the realities of racism in our city and in our country, and yes, even in our churches. Most of us are fairly good at recognizing the blatant stuff, a racial slur scrawled across a building downtown. But there is a long and sordid history of white Christians in particular simply choosing not to hear and not to heed the voices of our own brothers and sisters when they tell us of their experiences of racism. And the door to the racial justice to which God is calling us is always going to be remain closed to us when we ignore or when we discount the voices in our room who are insisting on a hearing. In this season of economic insecurity, in which economic disparities that already existed are only growing wider, in which more and more of us are beginning to be affected by the economic situation here locally, and in which those who are now newly designated as essential workers, but many of whom we know are among the most lowest paid in our society, face new risks at work every day, Rhoda might insist that we see the demands of the good news on what we do with our possessions. For some of us, financial cushion and resources means that while we might grouse about the rise in our internet rates or about the lack of variety at the grocery store, we will never do without. But there are people around us and people among us who will if they haven't already. And from inside our locked and climate-controlled houses, it is so easy to lose sight of Jesus' own insistence that what we do with what we own is not peripheral to the gospel. It is central. We so struggle to hear Jesus when he says that little things, inconsequential things like birds and flowers, not bank statements and retirement accounts, are what show us the way. And maybe... Just maybe, we have the opportunity to have our eyes and ears more adequately attuned to the need around us so that we might be moved to act and to do so in the face of such a strong temptation to hoard in self-protection. Maybe Rhoda might call us not simply to turn inward, but to turn outward instead. I don't know who the Rhoda might be for you. I don't know what voice is around you that's calling you persistently to pay attention to something you might otherwise discount or ignore. I don't know if it's one of the things I've named already or something else entirely. I don't know if it's the voice of your child asking you to come play when you feel like there are so many other things that need doing. I don't know if for you it's the voice of that saint in your life whose quiet confidence in God's provision you have to admit sometimes rankles when you feel overwhelmed with the scope of what we're dealing with. I don't know who Rhoda might be for you, but I do know that we are not complete when we are not attending to her voice. I do know that we cannot see the full picture of the gospel that we cannot hear the full call of the gospel on our lives 
unless we are tending to every voice in our midst. And so my benediction for you is this. May an unlikely messenger of God's good news pester you this week. May you be gently reminded over and over again to listen so that you too, so that we may all throw open the doors to a wider and more joyful understanding of God's good news, which is still at work in the world. Amen.